Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Welcome back to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, joined by my two colleagues, Aaron Turr and Will Creeley. They've been on the show before. Welcome back, gentlemen. It is a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So were you the director of public advocacy last time you were on the show, Aaron? Um, I, yeah, I think I was. Just yeah, yeah, I think you just were, because I think we did briefly talk about the role that public advocacy now plays within FIRE, which is sort of non-litigation advocacy related to FIRE's off-campus mission. You've been doing a lot of really good work on that front here. And Will, of course, the legal director. Let's jump right in. This weekend is the Super Bowl, and there was an interesting case that came across our desks in recent weeks involving Super Bowl clean zones. Have you guys heard of this before? I have now. <laughs> you know, nothing surprised me with the NFL. The NFL is like the ultimate corporate behemoth. And this is, I think, exhibit A of what that means for local municipalities. Well, they, they want total control over kind of their brand and the experience. So yeah. what was happening here in Phoenix, Arizona, where the Super Bowl is set to take place this weekend, was the city council passed a resolution establishing a quote-unquote clean zone. Uh, that requires property owners to apply for a permit to display temporary signage, which the city defines as, quote, anything that is not physically built into your business, such as posters, flyers, banners, pennants, flags, window paintings, and even balloons. Our uh, Jordan Howell, who wrote the article on our website about this, said, sorry, parents, but the direct decorations for your kid's birthday party will now need the approval of the NFL and the Arizona Super Bowl host committee. And this is a pretty restrictive policy. It was in place from January 15th through February 19th, or that's what the regulation stated, and occupied a nearly two-square-mile zone in downtown Phoenix. Now, this there was a lawsuit brought by the Goldwater Institute in Arizona challenging this, and the judge, a trial judge down there in Arizona, uh, issued, what was it, a, a restraining order saying that Phoenix had 48 hours to comply with the court order? I mean, what was what's wrong with this from a from a constitutional standpoint? Where do we start? You know, I'm, I'm a Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, lifelong football fan, football apologist in some circles, right? I will I, I will make no bones about it. I love the game. Uh, hell, I even coached my son in second grade flag football with officially licensed NFL shirts. But there is nothing cool about this, and <laughs> I will not make any apologies for the league. Uh, in this instance. I mean, it's just gross. Right down from the phrasing, right? This clean zone. I mean, ugh. Yeah, I was thinking. I thought it was going to be no drugs or alcohol in this zone. <laughs> but apparently no First Amendment. Clean either. zone. I mean, you know, the, the adjective Orwellian gets tossed around to a, an alarming degree in our line of work. But, man, clean zone. As if speech, you know, unregulated by this gigantic corporate enterprise is dirty. You know, like, and if I'm really want to level uh, with the audience here. This is not going to surprise everybody, anybody, but the reason this is happening is so they can sell advertising, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. For, for years, you've heard jokes that every local business right around this time of year can't talk about come get your wings or come down to the Acme supermarket to get your hoagie platter for the Super Bowl. you got to see the big game. And this is like the ultimate instance of the NFL saying, we're bigger than you, local government. You're going to sign away your citizens' free speech rights if we're going to come bring our party to your town. 
And you're going to put us on the board to determine whether a That's private right. business owner can put up a balloon or a sign yeah. in their in their private business. Yeah. Which is which is just and and the, and one of the other problems with it is that there were there were no standards to kind of guide those decisions about when you ask for permission from the NFL, can I put up the sign? It's kind of just there have full discretion to decide apparently whether to accept or reject that request. Is this something that's happened before? Yeah. I, uh, I think there was a clean zone in Tampa. Yeah, I'm 100% uh, sure they didn't just think of this. So the, yeah, yeah. Philly, where we're sitting now, had the draft a couple years ago, the NFL draft uh, on Museum Parkway down uh, by the Art Museum, and they lock it down. You know? yeah. And uh, I'm sure that was a little bit different, but it is a kind of super governmental entity, right? Like it's bigger than government. It's bigger than... Oh, damn near anything. It's the NFL coming to town. It's like a, a big corporate spaceship comes in and zaps all your local leaders' brains and removes all their rules and laws and says, now hear this. <laughs> Clean zone. Well, I'm trying to imagine how this all goes down, right? You're, you're a city and you're trying to pitch the NFL to bring the Super Bowl to your, to your city, to your town, right? Because it has a lot of economic benefit for the community. Um, in theory. <laughs> and, and one of the things you pitch is, hey, <laughs> essentially... We'll remove all of our citizens' First Amendment rights right. uh, within a two-square-mile perimeter for a month surrounding the Super Bowl if you come here. And to the extent any of them want to ad- advertise, we'll put you on the committee how, that will determine whether those advertisements or those that signage gets approved. Yeah. Uh, so it's an incentive to the Super Bowl to come to that city, right? Uh, <laughs> this... Does the city, now that the law has been struck down, owe anything to the NFL? Right? Presumably, the NFL signs a uh, advertisement or a pr- promotional agreement with Bud Light, right? And says you're going to have exclusive marketing permission within this two square mile zone. Uh, you know, Joe's Tavern on the corner to hell with them. They're not going to be able to advertise Miller Light. Yeah, I, I bet you it's a field day. The real winners in all this, right? Besides from besides the citizens and Joe's Tavern, like you're saying. Uh, are probably the lawyers, right? Because they all of a sudden say, wait a second, we get to delve into the nooks and crannies of this contract and figure out exactly who's on the hook for what. It reminded me a little bit, and this is a bad comparison for the NFL uh, and for Phoenix, but it reminded me a little bit of the World Cup in uh, Qatar, where at the last minute, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm remembering correctly, the Qatari officials were like, wait a second, you know what? We said you were going to have these drinking stations here and here, and Budweiser, we know you paid hundreds of millions to secure that access, but... You know, now that we think about it, nah. We're I remember gonna, that We're going to scrap that. You can't actually drink there. And there are these hilarious stories about, like, uh, the, the few hotels that were serving foreigners that were allowing uh, people to drink there. And, like, like uh, English fans getting there, like, two hours before the game and trying to drink as many beers as they could <laughs> in two hours. But, I mean, like, that's kind of what we're talking about here in terms of uh, instead of the Qatari government, now we're talking about the NFL, right? We are going to set the terms of engagement here. And yeah, I bet you it's a it's a nice little mess, just like it probably was for Budweiser and and Qatar and FIFA when uh, when Qatar changed its mind about drinking. But you know, to hell with all that. That's their problem. You yeah, know? right. Yeah. <laughs> From where I'm sitting, great work, Goldwater Institute. Uh, yeah. Credit to them. Because I, I don't I think I don't think a legal challenge had been brought. Right. First Amendment challenge had been brought. To it one it of blows my mind. Before, so. I wish we would have had this case. No <laughs> kidding. <laughs> no kidding. We would have we might have known about it first if it wasn't. Uh, if it was, if the Super Bowl was in Philadelphia, that's uh, a serious thing, actually. Well, by the way, <laughs> okay, <almost laughs> lost civil liberties uh, FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. I get that all the time, and I know you folks do too, right? You see an awesome case, 
and then you uh, you see somebody else bringing it. And all I can do is tip my hat and say, damn, I wish that was me. We talked about one this morning, right, involving a bakery. I forget where. Oh, yeah, the IJ case. Yeah, that it, for the Institute for Justice had a case involving a bakery. I forget where. It's some local community somewhere. Uh, and they hired school children, I believe, or they allowed for school children to paint a mural uh, on the bakery or next to the bakery. Call the cops. <laughs> they didn't know what the mural was going to be, but the mural ended up being something that included bagels in it, right? Yeah, it was related um, to baked goods in some way, yeah. And the city said because the mural had something to do thematically with the business, it needed prior city approval before it could be put up. So this is like a classic IJ case. Yeah. One of our colleagues, Alicia, was like, if chat GPT could have written... Come up with an IJ case. This would have been it, right? A perfect Institute for Justice case. Yeah, and that's one I'm involving commercial speech, which commercial is their speech. bread and butter. Yep, absolutely stupid uh, local rules. Uh, yeah, that was a perfect one. I also think of and the that one. was that was uh, the city. It, they filed a lawsuit on it, and I think the ordinance is on hold pending the outcome yeah, of the lawsuit. Yeah, and um, I think of the one uh, from last summer with the Delaware woman who had just beaten cancer and got the vanity plate. FK, cancer, mm. fuck cancer, right? And she's riding around, she's starting like conversations. People, as I recall, people would come up to her, you know, crying, say, I saw your license plate, it really means a lot to me, and that she would trade stories. It's a beautiful thing, right? This moment of triumphant resilience in the face of uh, lethal disease. And then, you know, it was, what, six to nine months later, all of a sudden Delaware says, yeah, we're going to claw that back. We need that license plate back. It's offensive. And I was like, this is the perfect case. <laughs> you know, I wanted that case so badly. And uh, ACLU of Delaware uh, <laughs> snagged it. So again, those, those cases aren't unique, though. It haven't, hasn't haven't those like kind of vanity license plate cases gone up to the Supreme Court? Uh, well, or the, a couple of appellate courts. The, the one that went up, yeah, the, the courts have weighed in on the the famous license plate case before the Supreme Court is Maynard v. Willey, right? Live free or die on the New Hampshire license plate. Um, but our colleague Adam Steinbaugh uh, just wrote an amicus brief in a license plate case, which is on our website, uh, filed it within the last two months. I don't know, it's yeah. been a blizzard of amicus briefs lately, but that's We have a new with. amicus attorney, right? Who's we have an amicus attorney. We probably, need, we probably need three of them. Yeah. Abby Smith, who's done great work uh, yeah. joining us from Beckett. Yeah. Anyway, but this is, this is nuts. So kudos to Goldwater. Great result. Boo to the NFL. Get your act together. You're not bigger than... Sometimes you know, I kind of like the, the, the new rules or regulations they put in place right. or take away right. in cities surrounding the Super Bowl. I was in, I was going to Indiana University uh, during one of the Super Bowls. All I know is the Super Bowl happened to like land around my birthday. So we went up to Indianapolis and they had removed their open container law. Ah, there you so go. you were able to walk around downtown and it, it was this very festive environment. And they never brought it back. I think there are very few cities now that have done away with their open container regulations. New Orleans is one of them New and Orleans Indianapolis say, yeah. is another one. It's like bizarre. Let me see. Would I trade open container regulations for First Amendment rights for private businesses? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not an either or, or scenario. Yeah, you can though. do both. You, you can, can do both. You can yeah. drink in the clean zone. There you go. Yeah, drink in the clean like, zone. I'm going to start using that around my house. I say, sorry kids, I'm instituting a clean zone here. I'm, I'm, I'm worried that uh, college and universities are going to pick up on that phrase. Ah. It almost, it's almost like the, the opposite of a free speech zone. Zone. It is so, so you have the gross. Free speech zone, and then you have the clean zone where you can't. Yeah. <laughs> Ugly free euphemisms. Speech. Free speech zone, and then clean zone. Also gross. Since we're in Philadelphia, it might be worth asking. When Philadelphia wins championships or goes to Super Bowls, uh, the city seems to come out in force. Broad Street seems to be a location right in the center of city for those who aren't aren't in Philadelphia, um, leading right to City Hall, and uh, citizens like to climb 
plant posts, uh, bus shelters. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm assuming this sort of... Uh, people who fell through the bu a bus shelter. I saw that, yeah. You, you, there's a whole genre of TikTok and Instagram reels that, that <laughs> demonstrate the, the raucousness of Philadelphia celebrations, but... Not protected speech, I'm assuming, too. Yeah, once you go up the pole, you're probably, you're probably crossing a the line there. Uh, there's a great article, and you should put it in the show notes. I was going to ask you about Sean this. Sean Hagen of South Philly, legendary article. Each paragraph in this Philadelphia Inquirer story is more Philadelphia than the next, and I say that with the absolute utmost respect. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just a great... The headline is, Philly pole climber who caught shotgun beers. So he's up on top of a pole. He's catching beers that people are throwing to him. This is after the Phillies went to the World Series. Uh, and the headline is Philly pole climber who caught shotgun beers. Not my first rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just... he, he shows up to work the next day. I mean, it's, it's an all-time classic article. It's worth the, it's worth a paywall. The, right. the the quotes are just French kiss. There you go. It's like talking about him talking to his boss ah. or why he didn't show up at work. I yeah. forget exactly no, what he, it was. He did show up at work to his credit. He, he shows up and he's like he's a little late, and his boss is like, "I knew that was you." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyway, so uh, so I, I I will say just for all my neighbors and friends. I'm a Bills fan. I will say good luck to the birds this weekend. Maybe by the time you're hearing this, we'll have uh, more iconic Sean Hagen uh, and Philadelphia uh, celebration moments to enjoy on YouTube. Why is it that none of my teams ever do well? Hey, buddy. I, go to th I know you know this as a Buffalo fan. Life. I'm a Notre Dame fan, and they've never won a championship in my lifetime. Um, well, you can always watch Rudy. Yeah, right. I could reload the glory days. I tell my kids who are now old enough to cry after the ends of seasons, I say we are building, you know, losing builds character and we are building Taj Mahal. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, right. That's it. All right, quick, let's talk about something else before I get teared up here. Yeah, let's talk about Chicago, my hometown, where we have Mayor Lori Lightfoot, her running for re-election right. in that city. and With a lot of primary challengers. Really interesting. Really? Over there. Yeah. I'm not familiar with the local politics Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's anymore. Interesting. Well, no wonder this happened then. Yeah, no, yeah. That's, that, I mean, that's right. So what, what did happen, Aaron? You want to give us the facts here? Yeah, so I, uh, I think it was a staffer on, campaign staffer, yeah. uh, for, for, on Lori Lightfoot's campaign that um, sent an email to Chicago Public Schools and was encouraging teachers in the schools to offer their students extra credit uh, to essentially uh, volunteer to help Lightfoot's re-election campaign. Um, so no bueno, <laughs> or bueno. <laughs> Somebody should have said something. No, this is yeah, no yeah. good. I think I think that I don't think you have to be a, a First Amendment scholar or you know. It's just I think the average person can look at this and see that it's at least inappropriate. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about this. Let me steel man this right because I know that you can get course credit. No, in college, I remember you could, I don't know about high school, for participating in campaigns. Um, but it's usually something that's done of your own volition. It's something, your, your own choice, you know, to the extent you're presented with the opportunities, it's just like kind of on a jobs board, people, yeah. and they, people put it on it. But there seems to be some sort of uh, inappropriateness, right, when you have the mayor, who is uh, the top elected official in Chicago, telling teachers, her employees, to encourage their students to volunteer for her election campaign for course credit. And that's a, that's a part, right? It's not just any campaign. It's not just go get involved in the democratic process, pick a campaign, you know, we'll give you some extra credit. Go go get a civic education by knocking on doors. No, no, it's you're going to knock on doors for my campaign, right? What if you knock on the doors of our competitors? You going to get extra credit? No. <laughs> that's, the, that's the problem, right? Uh, you, you're commandeering students to engage in the political pro uh, process uh, in support of a particular candidate or a particular message. And that's 
a big, big compelled speech violation. And we've seen that at FIRE. You know, this has come up over the years. Uh, we, we've seen instances like this where uh, we've had professors, uh, I'm thinking of a case that is one of the earliest FIRE cases that I was around for. Uh, the Citrus College case? The, the or Rhode Island. Rhode Island case where a student is in a, I want to say he's a graduate student in a, in a social work program, yep. right? And um, Bill uh, Felkner, am I getting that right? I'm, I'm looking at our article yeah. about Lightfoot here. We don't actually name the student in the yeah. Rhode Island College The case, case is yeah. still going on, and this is back in like 2006. David French was still the president of FIRE. I mean, holy smokes, you know. <laughs> Greg was the, the legal director. Case. Yeah, and so it's still working its way through the Rhode Island Supreme Court system. Um, but he uh, was required to engage in a group project, I think, for his graduate uh, class in social work where he had to lobby uh, on behalf of a particular topic. And he proposed a conservative topic. He's a conservative, and his professor yeah. said, no, you can't do this. You're going to have to figure out someone else to lobby and support him. He's like, what are you talking about? So the professor was dictating the terms of his public engagement beyond class. Like, it's one thing if it's a Socratic exercise saying, I remember one of the best classes I ever had was a guy, a uh, former Bush administration official, NYU undergrad, public policy class, hard class, good class. And he said, you're going to make, just assigned everybody topics that you're going to make the argument in support of. Me, I was privatizing Social Security. I know more about Social Security to this day than I would have had I not had to uh, argue uh, what was an unfamiliar position to me at the time. And, you know, steel manning your arguments, getting yeah. all set, fine, this is a pedagogical exercise in, within the, the walls of the classroom. But as soon as you say... And now you're going to go make that argument and sign your name to it and send it to, you know, your elected official. Or you're going to go to the state house here in Rhode Island and lobby in support of this thing. I mean, no, that, that's... It's not, yeah, it's not just an academic exercise. Right, right. That's something totally different. Yeah, I, I remember I had to argue one side or the other of the Export-Import Bank. Talk about... There you go. <laughs> right. I didn't, and I didn't know what side I was going to have to argue on before I arrived in class that day. That, that's so you had to research both sides and be excellent. prepared to make the case. Um, and that's that can be a very good academic exercise, as, really you, as you talk about. But right. it is different if I had to actually then take it to the next level and write a legislature uh, advocating for the position that I was assigned for that day regarding the Export-Import Bank. And that's essentially what what happened here. I mean, actually, it, it's, it's what happened even earlier than that. One of FIRE's first, first cases during the U.S. invasion of Iraq, a professor at Citrus College in California compelled undergraduate students to write anti-war letters yeah. to former President George W. Bush and penalized those who refused him. <laughs> you can't do that. No, <laughs> to, to, to the college's credit, we wrote them a letter, and uh, they responded swiftly to say, yeah, uh, professor can't do that. We're, we're sorry for that. But this, this Rhode Island case... Again, David French, now a New York Times columnist. Yeah, congrats to David French. That's right. Just had his first column in the New York Times. In which he name-checked us. Thank you again. Yes, he did. Yes, in a, in a very kind of um, powerful and meaty piece. It too. really was. Worth uh, reading. Where he talks a little bit about his, his, some of his experience here at FIRE um, and how it relates to kind of policing and separate conversation. But um, Anyway, that Rhode Island case that he was involved with, didn't make its way up to the Rhode Island Supreme Court until 2019, and it's still an active litigation. We're, ta we're talking about a case, what, 2006? My math's not correct. 17 years? Yeah, I joined, in, I joined FIRE August 2006, and that one is still cranking. I mean, it's nuts. Why? Well, it's, that, us us <laughs> non-lawyers here, why would it take let, so long? Let me give a shout-out to Tom Dickinson and Bill Falconer's legal team. That one has just been bounced up and down. It's slow. 
I don't want, I, it's before the court, so I'll just leave it there. Uh, but the process is winding and wending its way through and it's... it's because just, sometimes, and, and I don't know exactly yeah. what the issues were in this case that had it going up and down, but often you in, in, in lawsuits you have, you might take, uh, one party will take appeal from adverse rulings at the trial court level, uh -huh. like before the case is done, before there's been a final order of judgment sometimes, and that can go up to the intermediate appellate court and then the losing party at that level might appeal to the Supreme Court and then the Supreme Court makes a decision that says, okay, and then they reverse the decision and maybe send it all the way down to the trial court to continue the case now that that issue's been resolved. And then maybe another issue comes up. So, 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 you're, just, so you're just playing whack-a-mole with different issues. That, that yeah. It, yeah. That, so that's why generally you actually can't appeal. Uh, uh, you can't appeal to the, to the next appellate court uh -huh. from the trial court level until there's been a final order of judgment. That way you can just deal with all the issues that have come up through the course of the case. But there are sometimes exceptions where you can appeal to called an interlocutory yeah. order that you can appeal immediately. Um, so I don't know if that's what's going on here. Or yeah, what, a, but, a, but there's a million different reasons why a case can take a decade to resolve. I could tell you all about it, but it would take 16 years. Well, that's why when you're a, you're a, a public interest law firm, you kind of need to build a war chest because yeah. some of these cases can last forever and be very, very expensive. It'd be interesting to see at the outcome of this case if Bill hopefully wins what the what the attorney's fees are. Yeah, right? it'd, be, it'd be very interesting. I tell you, this always reminds me that just the length of the legal process reminds me of Fire's uh, classic case uh, in support of Hayden Barnes. Uh, Valdosta State. Yeah, yeah, Valdosta State University where he's... Georgia. Georgia, he gets expelled. And by the time... So Hayden uh, gets expelled, administratively withdrawn, as they put it. Uh, and by the time... Talk it, about an uh, Orwellian... Yeah, term. exactly. By the time that case is done, so he's an undergrad. I think he's a sophomore. He gets kicked out. By the time the case is done, two trips up to the 11th Circuit, he has not only completed, you know, re-enrolled somewhere else, completed his undergraduate degree, he's also graduated from law school. Yeah. So he, he's, it took a while. Um, but yeah, so thinking of uh, public interest, civil liberties, fear of missing out, feel it a little bit here too. So hat tip to the Illinois chapter of the ACLU, uh, which blew the whistle here, and it uh, looks like the mayor has backtracked, right? Yeah, backtracked fairly it. quickly. I yeah. mean, the, the Chicago public school teachers also made hay out of this. Right. You know, said it was inappropriate yeah. as well. So they, uh, so Good. Mayor Laurie Lightfoot kind of got it from all sides. Good, as, as well uh, the mayor should. The mayor should know better. Uh, and that, let, let that be a lesson to all elected officials. Boy, we got two... Municipalities behaving badly. Hold right? on, let me look at my notes. Do I have anything yeah, else that we, we should got? cover? No, I don't know that we have any more municipalities. But Tune we, in next time. I'm sure we'll have more. <laughs> but we do have Indiegogo, Kickstarter, and Crowdfunder. Okay. Uh, Aaron, you wrote a lengthy piece for Fire's website called Indie No Go. Some of our headlines are great. Like the Super Bowl one is Free Speech Fumble, Phoenix Ordinance Restricting Signs During Super Bowl is Offsides on the First Amendment. Aaron's is Indie No Go. Popular crowdfunding sites cancel fundraisers for comic books about gender identity and the U.S.-Mexico border. So let me just lay this out here. Um, you have Mike Barron and Richard Bonk, who wanted to publish a new graphic no novel called Private American, which uh, was about these superheroes taking on drug, drug cartels, like vigilante superheroes taking on drug cartels on the U.S.-Mexican border. Is that correct? Yeah, the main character is a, he's a Cuban-American ex-Green Beret. And something happened to him or his family, some tragedy at the hands of drug cartels. So he becomes, you know, this vi vigilante uh, justice seeker uh, at the U.S. border fighting drug cartels. Human traffickers. Human traffickers, terrorists, uh, other bad actors. Um, it's, 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 he's... 
sort of supposed to be like a mashup of the Punisher who Mike Barron wrote for that comic book in the past yeah. and like Captain America or yeah uh, so it's supposed to be because the comic book this is just an idea when it was up on the crowdfunding right, site right? right like they hadn't actually written the comic book yet and there was another gentleman whose name his last name's Braley. Chris Braley. Chris Braley, but he wasn't actually, he didn't create the comic book, right? He was someone who just helped with the fundraising process. That's right, that's right, yeah. So he set up a Kickstarter campaign to raise $250. They ended up raising $2,500, 10 times more than they initially set out, before Kickstarter suddenly suspended the campaign, right, Aaron? Right, yeah. They actually, so they had a few different campaigns. They had Kickstarter, uh, Indiegogo, and Crowdfunder. Um, and... So uh, I think the first campaign was actually on Indiegogo. And what happened with Indiegogo is they discovered that the campaign had been restricted so that uh, it wouldn't show up in search results on Indiegogo's site or on... Oh, shadow banning. Yeah. Uh, or as Twitter liked to term it, uh, visibility filtering. Mm-hmm. Right. Another sort of Orwellian term, right? Yeah. Um, the euphemisms always have more syllables too. You know? I think George Carlin had a whole bit about that. Like how like shell shock went to to like battle fatigue to, to post traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So uh, so Indiegogo so Indiegogo shadow banned the campaign, um, and they also and then at some point they had a private American Twitter dedicated Twitter account. Uh, that was suspended for reasons unknown by Twitter. All right, so those were kind of the first bumps. So when you shadow ban it, right, you can only find the campaign with a direct link. You need the, you need the actual Which you URL. can't share anymore on Twitter. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. And that's kind of one of the points you know, uh, that I try to make in the article is that you have this things happening on all these different fronts that maybe any particular one in isolation might not be the biggest deal, but the cumulative effect of all of it can have yeah. a real impact. These platforms tend but, to follow each other when someone gets deplatformed. Right, right. Um, and then so what happened with the kids, so then they kind of focused on the Kickstarter and the crowdfunder campaigns. Um, but then on the Daily Coast, the online publication of Daily Coast, uh, someone wrote this article that slamming uh, private American. Uh, they called it a, a diatribe of racist propaganda and stochastic terrorism disguised as a funny book. Uh, and Bear in mind, like you mentioned before, it hadn't been released yet. So this is all just based on the synopsis on the Kickstarter page. Um, And the author of that article encouraged their readers to express displeasure with Kickstarter. Um, Yeah, and asked them to take it down functionally. And then it it looks like in the comments section, some actually said, yeah, I reached out. Yeah, yeah. And so some people did that. Um, And then literally, I think the next day, day, Kickstarter suspended the campaign. refunded all the money that, that Braley and Barron had already raised uh, back to the donors, the backers of the campaign. Um, no route for appeal. That was just it. And then a f- I think it was just a few days after that, that crowdfunder followed suit and suspended the campaign. It's, um, Kickstarter is free to do this, right? Yes. It's a private company. Uh, but you argue in the piece that it shouldn't, and to the extent it articulates sort of principles or values uh, for their association, that they should live up to that. You you write in here that Kickstarter's charter says it will always support, serve, and champion artists and creators. Their website also says, we don't want art world elites and entertainment executives to define our culture. We want creative people, even those who've never made anything before, to take the wheel. 
we help creators connect directly with their communities, putting power where it belongs. Right. So, right. They, they, they have all this lofty rhetoric on their websites about we're trying to, we're toppling the cultural gatekeepers and right. We're connecting our creators directly with their supporters, their communities. Um, but then you're kicking someone off your platform based on the content of their creative work. Or just the outrage. Because these, or, these or campaigns, right. in order to go up, they already need to be approved. Oh, so yeah, that's another, Kickstarter that's another reviewed and approved point, yeah. the project before it went live. Right. Then the Daily Coast article comes up, asks the readers to kind of form a mob and say, Kickstarter, take this down, uh, which they're free to do too. But you'd hope that some of these platforms that are committed to uh, creativity and artistic expression would have a spine. Yeah, yeah, um, but not. yeah, uh, but essentially, you're just—they're just becoming a new type of gatekeeper, right? Whether it's based on their dislike of the content of, of the of the art, mm -hmm. or whether it's based on the you know public reaction or you know angry internet mobs that want this art removed. Like now, you're essentially you're you're just a new entity uh, that's deciding what art is acceptable for people to consume. Uh, which is, yeah, which is yeah. completely incompatible. Becoming the new art world elite and entertainment executives right. and right. putting the power in Kickstarter, not yeah. with the artists. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. That's a real, that's a really, I think, galling part here, right? As you point out, Nico, it's reviewed, approved, it's up. They have all these lofty promises, and then that goes out the window at even the slightest, you know, yeah. sign of controversy or trouble. It reminds me a little bit, and Aaron comes uh, to be director of public advocacy after a stint in our individual rights defense program, now our campus rights advocacy program. I'm the same way. You know, it reminds me a little bit of when we write private schools. You make a lot mm -hmm. of promises, Harvard, Yale, whatever, Kickstarter, you're free to do so, right? You could say, we're not going to fund stuff featuring Cuban-American guys taking on cartels <laughs> that, that daily cost readers don't like. You could have that provision there, but that's not what you say. Yeah, so, you know, have a spine, live up to your promises. Well, so, some of these platforms, right, are organized around like specific missions or values or kind of ideas, right? Mm -hmm. I, I believe there are some crowdfunding sites out there dedicated to just kind of Christian initiatives, right? Sure. Uh, just like there are expressive associations uh, or companies uh, focused on just like dating apps for for Christians, yeah, or, or Jews, or right. you know, you know, you have those, but then you have. Platforms like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, which said they're a platform for all artists, all creators to connect with their communities, to break down the gatekeepers. Uh, and then they go and then they go and do this. And the rules are vague. You ask them why they're doing it. They can't really explain, right? They just kick you over to a policy that essentially grants them full discretion to determine what content can and cannot exist on their platform. And then you raise twenty five hundred bucks in in one case of another artist who was crowdfunding for a comic book, actually took their word at it. They raised a thousand bucks, I believe. This is uh, Nina Paley. Nina Paley, Nina Paley this yeah. is Agents of Hag, and actually printed an order to the printer right. before their fundraiser was canceled and the money returned to the donors. I mean, can you tell us about Nina Paley and her? Uh, yeah, yeah her so Nina Paley is, a, is another uh, comic book. She's a comic book artist uh, and, and writer. Um, and uh, she's also a she's a self-described gender critical radical feminist. So you know, so there's this disagreement among. That's a direct quote too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you remember yeah. it. Um, there's so there's this disagreement right uh, among feminists about uh, transgender 
issues, issues yeah. and uh, you know the relationship of gender or, or gender identity and sex and what the definition of a man and a woman is, right? And so um, she writes this this uh, comic book, Agents of Hags, trying to get it self-published, and it the main characters are um, menopausal woman and sidekick. Those are their actual names. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's supposed to be kind of representative of like an older generation of feminists. And the, the, the bad guy from. is named Ben Hammer. Ben Hammer, right? So right. it's right squarely. I mean, it's, a kind it's, of, it's about right. how eff- effectively gender-critical radical feminists like Nina are being banned from all these different platforms. Again, exactly. this hasn't actually been written yet. This is just a synopsis. Right, and there are a few, yeah, synopsis and a few panels that are featured on the, on the fundraising page. Um, so yeah, obviously, again, like provocative, controversial material. Uh, and... Yeah, she had raised, she had surpassed her fundraising goal, like you said, place an order with the printer, uh, and then Indiegogo, can, you know, without any advance warning, just canceled the campaign. They they do appeal to, you know, these companies. They'll appeal to something in their um, terms of service about uh, like content that express that shows intolerance towards marginalized groups, mm-hmm. so, something something along those lines, or discrimination against marginalized groups, and that's kind of the provision that they rely on. Um, but uh, but yeah, but but again, you know, Indiegogo kind of has those same commitments as Kickstarter to creative freedom, to supporting artists, uh, and it's just it's hard to reconcile. Yeah, I mean, how do, how does Fire think about these sort of private institutions? Like, it's, see, this seems like an institution, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, that is different in kind from, say, a payment processor. You wrote a little bit about payment processors, Aaron, or uh, what is it, uh, Cloudflare, mm. uh, which is kind of a denial of service. Protect, you know, protects websites against denial of service attacks or like internet service providers. Um, yeah, we've talked a lot about this about mm-hmm. this because there is always a tension, right? right? When you have private organizations, there's this tension where you have on one side, you know, the freedom of association that private businesses and organizations generally have, right? So they're generally free to associate or disassociate with other people based on their views, right? Based on their speech. Um, but, so, you know, there's, I think most people would recognize, like, for instance, right, I think most people intuitively understand that there's something different about, for instance, Planned Parenthood firing an employee because they're engaging in pro-life advocacy, mm-hmm. right, versus Bank of America denying service to a customer because they engage in pro-life advocacy. Yeah. Right, and, and the, the idea there is that some organizations, institutions, they kind of have an expressive mission themselves, mm-hmm. right? And so, if you're, you might, if you have uh, employees or members that are hostile to that expressive mission, yeah, right, and have views that are that are contrary to it, then that can un- undermine the very kind of purpose of the organization, right? Or you're a or, Jewish dating website and you have a bunch of Christians on it, right? You yeah, can, you or, can say, or, hey, or, or you know, this is, right? yeah, yeah, right. right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Whereas, you know, Bank of America, right, this is just, or other kind of run-of-the-mill companies that just provide services to the general public, mm-hmm. right, that, that's, that doesn't necessarily uh, have that same concern, or the expressive component isn't as strong, right, for those types of businesses and organizations. And there's a real concern, I think, that if, if we want to preserve, you know, not just a strong First Amendment, but a culture of free speech, um, if, if many of these organizations and businesses get into this game of policing their users or their customers' speech, then that's going to be very bad for a culture of free expression because it's going to create a huge chilling effect 
Especially if you're hitting people in their pocketbook. Yeah. Right. Particularly um, the closer they are to like a public accommodation. They just, you know, they provide a service. You have a great line in your article here, Aaron, which talks about kind of the compounding effects of all these different institutions who are, are ostensibly non-ideological banning people. And it talks here, just trying to self-publish a book, for example, potentially exposes you to multiple censorship choke points that can limit your access to important resources. Crowdfunding sites to raise funds for your project, social media platforms to promote it, online payment providers to receive your payments or donations, and online marketplaces to sell the book, right? Uh, so it functionally excludes you from kind of the marketplace. Right, and if all those different uh, you know, all those different elements or all those different points in, in the chain, right, are, are all kind of converging around the same intolerance of the same kind of set of viewpoints or for, forbidden views and speech, then that just, that has kind of a multiplier. Yeah, effect, it's kind of like right? a turnkey cultural authoritarianism. You know, if the political wind blows a certain way and enough pressure can be brought to bear and those choke points collapse upon each other like we saw in the... Uh, in the uh, private American instance where one of them follows the other and they all kind of give each other permission or cover to right, right. choke down on, a, on expression that uh, offends a, a, a majority or even just a vocal minority of folks, yeah, then you're, then you're denying access. And that's a real problem for our free speech culture. So, yeah. you know, what, what we've got to do, I think, is educate folks to say, yeah, they're getting, you know, payments on PayPal or it's listed on Indiegogo. But that, first of all, doesn't mean that Indiegogo itself you know, is quote-unquote supporting or endorsing the speech. Just like when we say at a private university, the fact that you've got a registered student group that doesn't mesh with, you know, the university's preferred line on a given political controversy doesn't mean that they're talking for the university. That's number one. And second of all, got to remind people that the answer to speech you disagree with is not to, you know, slap duct tape over somebody's mouth, but let them say it and then critique it, right? Let, you know, Agents of Hag or Private American be published and printed and then write your own comic book saying why you don't like it, right? That's what we want to get to. Well, not, yeah. Yeah. there are two. Yeah, write your critical review. Write your critical you know, review. Yeah. Say this is, you know, whatever. You don't like it. But Well, there are two interesting points there to kind of pull out from what you're talking about, uh, Will. One of which is as soon as you take a position, you're an institution that's donated, uh, dedicated to one mission, you take a position on like a political or ideological battle happening. The expectation is from activists on all sides of issues is that you'll continue to do that sort right. of thing. And then silence is also, you know, if in the future on an issue... Right. You're silent on it. That's also a state. You've either reneged on your commitment, or you didn't hold it, or because we now have these very homogenous political blocks where you're either red America, blue America, and it's not like, oh, I support you know this idea from the left and this idea from the right. You don't have this heterodox mixing. Now we're all sorted into these camps. So if you support one thing, well, then you probably support the other thing. And if you don't, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Right? So yeah, that I, I was reading polarization right. wars. And I was reading an interesting analysis from Mike Allen, who writes the Axios AM newsletter, about how corporations in, in 2020 and early 2021 were taking a lot of public stand on political and ideological issues, but have been doing that less so lately. And it's kind of confusing their, uh, their customers in a certain sense, or even their employees. Right. A lot of the communication around these issues is now happening internally. Um, why are they doing that? Well, one, you have legislatures and, and politicians going after them for doing so. Two, you're also just alienating your customers. Like, how you political know, do you want your bank to be? Yeah, or or Disney, right? Like this this non political entity for for so long is now kind of reviled in certain respects by by certain segments of the political right because of the stance it took on some of DeSantis's uh, legislation. Now, corporations have taken stances on legislation. Uh, all the time, but it seems like they're doing it a little bit more often that they 
than they used to. One thing I will say, just to the extent that any of these corporations, such as Netflix or Amazon, kind of host um, content, is when the calls for censorship come, if you take a strong stance early that you're not going to censor, the demands go away. Yeah. Right? Like, ever since uh, Ted Sarandos came out and said, no, we're not going to take down Chappelle, like, that just ended that controversy. And Amazon saying they're not going to take down this or that book. It's just like no one try. Activists don't try that tactic right, they're anymore. Looking for, they're looking for a crack in the armor when right. you show vulnerability, and then and then they keep attacking. It's, it's really interesting now that we've you know what are we six seven months eight months into the expansion. The lessons that are relevant from our time defending free speech on public and private campuses, and particularly here again, private campuses, right? Is for years, I would tell general counsels, administrators, whomever at conferences. Have your commitment strategy before, like have your pre-commitment to freedom of speech made clearly expressed in policy and statement and speech uh, prior to the controversy. Because it doesn't matter if it's MSNBC or Fox bringing cam- cameras to your campus. If you can say, you know, look what I said before, right? Or what's on my t-shirt will answer all of your questions. We support free speech, right? If you can do that, if you can be like Odysseus and tie yourself to the mask before you go past the sirens, you're going to be in great shape. But if you're trying to, if you're trying to make it up as you go along in that moment, Good luck and God bless, right? I mean, and that's, you know, I would say the same thing to these uh, corporate titans, whether it's, you know, Indiegogo or, or Netflix or whomever. And you're right, Netflix is a good example here. Say it early and often and then say, this is our policy. You can keep talking. It's not going to change. It's a little bit like parenting, Nico. Yeah, I know, right? Like, here's the rule. We're going to stick to it. You know, you can talk a lot about it and that's fine. You've got the right to do it, but... At the end of the day, this is still the rule, and the rule is either we support creators, even if you know you don't agree with it, or we don't. And yeah. once you say we'll take one thing down, then the floodgates open. Yeah. Then you're in the void. The, there's uh, we're in Philadelphia, so president of UArts, uh, President Yeager, I forget his first name. Uh, when Camille Polyak, sort of the feminist writer, yeah, um, scholar. Was you know she had controversial statements about Me Too back in 2017, 18, 19. She was being Camille Paglia, right? Yeah, she was being Camille yeah. Paglia, and students wanted her fired. Uh, and the president issued very quickly an email to the entire campus community and said, you know, this sort of censorship not at, not now not at UArts just ended, right? The demand. So um, uh, thanks for writing the story. There's some really good art in it, if uh, <laughs> really interesting art in it. For those who want to check it out, again, the article is Indie No Go Popular Crowdfunding Sites Cantle Fundraisers for Comic Books. Uh, I want to pick up on a thread that we had two podcasts ago uh, involving Hamlin University. This is the story that yeah. <laughs> never ends. Listeners who listened to that last episode with Michael Moynihan and Amna Halid will recall that there was a faculty member at Hamlin University, an adjunct faculty member who was teaching a global art survey class, including a module or a lesson about Islamic art history, showed a 14th century Persian masterpiece uh, painting that depicted the Islamic prophet Muhammad. She had noted that they would be showing depictions of Muhammad in the syllabus and gave a warning prior to that class as well, saying, you know, if you're, or even the, the showing of the image, saying if you, if you know, if this offends your sensibilities. You don't have to look at this. You won't be punished. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless, uh, one devout, devoted Muslim student did stick around uh, despite the warnings. Later at a forum said, who do you turn to at 8 a.m. when uh, a teacher offends your religion, which I found to be like <laughs> kind of peeking over the fence to see what sort of vulgarities your neighbors are behaving in. But leave that there. Anyway, 
the university doubled down, decided that the called out the professor, said that she was Islamophobic, uh, said that respect for the observant Muslim students in the classroom should have superseded academic freedom. Yeah, and got ages. got. Uh, lambasted for it, and even in a statement after that, right? The president uh, comes out in a, in a was it a statement or an op-ed? I want to say it was another statement where it said essentially academic freedom should be subject to the dictates of society. Right. It was like saying yeah, exactly it should. It was like saying uh, academic freedom should be superseded to religious sensibilities, but eight hundred words. Yeah, <laughs> of that. That, and, and I, that was crazy, right? Because usually was gone. when you see the news that they come coming out, the president's coming out with a, a follow-up statement. It's almost always like all right. At that point, they're kind of relenting. Right, a bit, but right? This, but one this, was, like, this one was this one was. Basically, it was like, how dare you? I will always protect my students. In fact, you are also, you know, all my critics, also Islamophobic to some extent. And, I mean, it was just like a, uh, it was like the old I'm rubber, you're glue kind of deal. I mean, I, I was I was impressed by the, the hubris, right? Like, it was like, yeah, it was, it was a lot. The fire ended up uh, driving a mobile billboard around campus the first two days of class. I believe it was January 17th and 18th, but I could have those wrong. Um, <laughs> that asked the question, where does it stop? And depicted the statue of David in boxer briefs. <laughs> so, yeah. right? Like, what, when you censor art because of sensibilities, um, where does it stop? Um, and the, the university and its president got lambasted for this. Ultimately, uh, the chair of the university board of trustees says, it was never our intent to suggest that academic freedom is of lower concern or value than our stu- students. Care does not supersede academic freedom. The two coexist, kind of walking back the president's earlier email. And then the faculty, the full-time faculty, voted 71 to 12 in favor of asking the university president to step down. So um, they've gotten it from all quarters, and we'll see what happens, I guess. I will say the response I found generally heartening, right? Setting aside the the doubling down uh, from the university president, uh, and, and uh, you know, even in some perhaps noteworthy quarters, right? So you've got the local chapter of the Council on American Islamic Relations, the local chapter uh, CARE, basically telling professors, watch what you say. He comes in, does a, does a session, yeah, and tells the chair of the art department basically like, you know, not everybody would look kindly on this. Like, you know, kind of... I think he said, this is more or less a direct quote, paraphrase slightly, yeah. is that if you want to teach some controversial stuff about Islam, teach it in the local library. Or like, or yeah, basically, mm. it was something It was something chilling and creepy, like, yeah, you know, ask Salman Rushdie or something like that. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but it was yeah. something like, you you know, it was kind of like fuck around and find out, basically, was, yeah. was, the, was the message being sent to the faculty there. And it was just this remarkable back and forth uh, with, with the, the head of the local care chapter. And then the national care comes in and says, wait a second. You know, we, here's our line. It's different than this local chapter's line. We're basically going to disavow that, right? We, we, there's no uh, conception of Islam that requires uh, the response we've seen here. They basically distance themselves, which I thought was a very positive sign. National commentary, local commentary, faculty commentary, commentary from both the left and the right, it all coalesced around what I thought was a really healthy uh, pro-free speech, pro-academic freedom, wait a second, this is crazy response. And it came from Muslim scholars, it came from, you know, like I say, scholars on the left, right? It just felt like a unified moment of clarity, understanding that if we allow student sensibilities, student religious sensibilities in this case, but really student sensibilities at all to be privileged such that academic freedom is a dead letter, we're in deep trouble. So I was heartened. I actually took it as a... As a good sign. I mean, this was a classic case. Again, I've been doing this for 16 years. This is one of the, what, three or four 
most clarifying, crystallizing cases you can imagine where you have the interest so clearly competing, where the professor is doing all of the pedagogically sensitive things and the student's response is a certain way. I mean, it couldn't get more kind of encapsulating of the work that FIRE does on campus here. And this time the cavalry showed up. So I was grateful for that. We, I, I, we I organized a faculty petition that had 400 faculty signatures from across the world. And uh, we had something like 2,000 emailers use our take action porter to email the university president. Which I think is far and away the, the, the most popular or the largest sign onto a faculty letter that we've done. It's just yeah. nice yeah. to know that there's, there's that response is out there, right? Because this could it was depressing as hell. And it could have remained depressing itself. I mean, we could be having this update. If you told me back in the beginning of January that we were going to be having this update, I remember Professor Volokh emailing me about this one right around Christmas. And if you had said, come February, this one is still going to be raging, and we're going to have a big partisan food fight where it's folks on the left saying, yeah, this is right, or folks on, you know, whatever. You can imagine this going the other way. Yes, I'm glad sure it went going. this way. The people saying, this is too far. This is nuts. Yeah, including uh, faculty at the institution itself. Right, right? at the because institution. Who I think are, that's, we would love to see that happen more. It's nice um, to see faculty stand up for each other, whether yeah. it's the chair of the department. And, you know, we're not even talking about the interesting uh, adjunctification angle here, right, where it's an adjunct and it's a non-renewal, if I'm remembering, yeah. and they tried to do that dance, like, oh, she was already getting her contract canceled, blah, 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 blah. So this was, this was a good, I mean, I don't want to, be too too happy about it. I'd like it like it not to have taken a month, but yeah, it's nice to see that that response, uh, both in academia and the general culture, is there because this one got a lot of press too. You mentioned uh, Rushdie. There was just an article that came out in the New Yorker yesterday by Remnick, who um, I think got his first inter- got the first interview with Salman Rushdie since he was attacked on stage in New York last summer. Um, and there's just a really striking photo in that of Rushdie, he's got his glasses on with one lens blacked out because I believe he was stabbed in the eye or he's lost function in that eye. And the article is worth the read. Um, if you've read Joseph Anton, his kind of autobiographical memoir of his days in hiding after the Satanic Verses came out, you'll probably get a lot of what's in this article. It also talks about his new book. So it goes through the history, but you know, a couple of really interesting things that came out of it is one that having a hard time sleeping, you can imagine that. But he's also, he doesn't like to use the word writer's block, he says, but he's also having a hard time writing um, after this. And it and it's forced him to kind of reevaluate his security situation because for many years he's kind of lived a normal life. Um, he spoke at Fires Gala in 2019. We said, do you need security? He said, no, I don't need it. He did. And uh, that night I had the honor and privilege of speaking with him a little bit uh, after, but both before and after the event, and then taking him down after his speech down the elevator to catch a cab in New York. And I never thought twice about it, just because there we were, I, you know, making small talk with this, you know, <laughs> revered uh, literary figure. And only reading this article did I realize what kind of a phenomenal act of courage that had been, or in the immediate uh, aftermath of the the, the stabbing, uh, to think. Yeah, he was really putting himself out there, you know. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. And and putting himself out there and being such a strong advocate right. for free speech. Right, coming off know, the course. stage saying, don't be afraid, you know, uh, and then yeah. going out into the New York night that night. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's a powerful image. It, yeah, and it's, it's the message is that much more powerful, right, when it comes from someone in his position who's, who, when he came out, when he started living a normal life, the fatwa was very much still in effect, right? He still had this bounty on his head from... The supreme leader of Iran. Oh, thank goodness uh, so, he's alive. Yep. Yeah. So, I, I want to just close by asking you about a survey that Fire recently conducted in 
partnership with the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago, where we asked uh, 1,140 Americans if they could name any of the specific rights protected by the First Amendment. And almost a third of Americans could not name a single enumerated right protected by the First Amendment. And another 40% could only name one. Surprising? Uh, nope. <laughs> I mean, we got work to do. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I go out to talk to students, faculty, whatever, high school students, graduate students, whomever, uh, general public, you know, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that there's a long and arduous road uh, ahead for civil libertarians and, and folks who care about free speech. Just the, the educational component uh, of the work we do is probably the most important thing. Yeah, this... This is pretty consistent with some findings from, I believe it's, what, the Annenberg Center? Yeah, I feel like you see one of these. Annenberg Constitution Civics Day Survey. I feel like you see one of these every year, every couple of years, and it's it's not surprising, it's it's depressing, but uh, it's also an opportunity is the way I look at it, right? Yeah. So it's always, one of the concerning parts is is when you see the generational difference, too, that's the younger generation that, that tends to have less understanding or less... Um, confidence in free speech as an important principle um, and I, like you said I think it just underscores the importance of education because we, we often talk about how free speech isn't uh, it's not an intuitive idea right in some ways yeah. it goes against human nature because there's a strong impulse to just shut up people that you disagree with you might call it uh, an eternally radical eternally <laughs> radical right? idea as, as, as a CEO Greg Lukianov calls it um, so yeah, so you you th- yeah the idea of tolerating even speech that you find reprehensible can seem crazy at first blush and, until you take the time to to learn about the reasons why it's important and, and really process that. So you know it, it makes me wonder like are we uh, how much is the First Amendment being taught and free speech principles being taught in the K through 12 schools and high schools? And we stuff? we have work to do. I, you know, I want to give a special shout to that three percent of Americans who can name all five. <laughs> I'm not surprised that the uh, right to petition consistently comes in last. I, yeah, I, yeah, that's right. I would say put petition there. We could rank our favorites. We'll do that next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I would just say work to do, not a surprise. But, um, you know, also it uh, underscores the importance of finding people's self-interest, right? Say not just the first man protects these rights, but the first man protects your rights. Yeah, you know, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the key. Personalize it for them. You got it. To put a data point to what you were saying there, Americans aged 18 to 29 were significantly less likely to name free speech than any other Americans. It was protected by the uh, First Amendment, and those aged 60 and older were 70% uh, likely to name one of those rights versus the younger cohort. It was just 55%, so kind of a 15% difference between the likelihood of naming free speech as being protected by the First Amendment between those 18 to 29 and those older than 60. I, you know, I will say as someone who works in the communications field, um, this teaches me something, right? Mm-hmm. If when we're talking about freedom of expression, uh, it's not enough to just name the First Amendment. There's a third of our potential audience, for example, that doesn't know what that means, right. what that protects. So, right. you know, in our messaging, we have to say, you know, freedom of speech, which is protected as a right under the First Amendment or something yep. like that is kind of just an educational process, if not a clarifying one. Yeah. But a, a word of um, optimism is that the Freedom Forum, which has conducted surveys on these issues in the past as well, has consistently found that high school students who have taken classes that include content about the First Amendment are more supportive of free speech rights and you know, 
know that free speech is protected under the First We've Amendment. We've got a good story to tell. It's a, it's a proud and uplifting history, and, and um, makes me happy to work here, because as I say, we really should look at it as an opportunity. I remember being, you know, and people find it in different ways. If each, each of us can reach somebody every day, we'll make, <laughs> make some movements on these numbers. I remember being eight and listening to Two Live Crew, Band in the USA, and the rap is, the First Amendment gave us freedom of speech, so what are you saying, it didn't include me? And if you can get that to everybody, Maybe not that particular song, but that sentiment, because <laughs> Two Live Cree won't reach everybody. But, uh, you know, that, that's, that's the work, and uh, that's the work we're doing every day. That's the work that waits for us in our inboxes when we're done recording this podcast. It's a good note to end on. Will, Aaron, I want to thank you guys for coming onto the show again. Hope yeah. we'll do it again sometime soon. Been yeah, a pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. I have to record the outro from my phone because I forgot to print it up, or I did print it up, and I forgot to take it off the printer. I'm surprised you can't do it by heart, Nico. Uh, the outro, I can't, because there's too many URLs, right, too many right. things to remember. The intro, I can't. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleagues, Aaron Reese LaRosse. To learn more about So To Speak, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is linked in the show notes. Most of our episodes, including this one, feature video conversation. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram by searching for the handle Free Speech Talk. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. And you can also email us feedback at so to speak at fire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. New, new reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. Until next time, thank you all again for listening.